0: Brian Karam. Hi, and welcome back to Just Ask the Question. I am your host, Brian Karam, and today it is a pleasure to have with us John Knox, who's an internationally recognized expert on human rights. He's a professor at Wake Forest and the former UN Special Rapporteur on Human Rights and the Environment. See, I think I even pronounced it correctly, John, I hope. You
1: you did. That was excellent. Thank you very much, Brian. Not everyone pronounces that correctly, so I appreciate that.
0: We'll be back with John in just a second. Hi, and welcome back to Just Ask the Question. I am Brian Carman with us today, as I said, is John Knox, an internationally recognized expert on human rights law and international environment law. And uh, John, I guess the, the reason why I wanted to talk to you will start out with, I, I love your work on, on human rights. So we'll get into that in the, the second block, but climate change, particularly. Um, we've known of climate change for a while. I I believe that goes way back to a guy named uh, what was it uh, uh, James Hansen in the '80s, who who outlined the change and he's been very correct in his assumptions about what would happen. Um, but today, when I walk into the White House, I get a complete denial of climate change, and in fact, get a complete denial of anything climate related at all. Right. The the, the argument is sure the the uh, temperature may be changing, but it's all natural and humans had nothing to do with it. What do you tell people like that.
1: Yeah, at this point, Brian, I, honestly, it's kind of hard to convince people if they're not going to have been convinced already. I mean, the science on this is now just clear beyond dispute, and it has been clear for a long time, really. But I think twenty or twenty-five years ago, you could still find people of good faith who really wanted to find out more about what was going on before they drew conclusions. At this point, I mean, I heard Michael Mann, the famous climate scientist, the other climate scientist the other day, say that the science on climate is about as firm as the science on gravity. I mean, there's just no dispute about it. And and fundamentally, even for people like me, who you know, I'm not, I'm not a scientist by training. I'm a lawyer even for people like me, it's a pretty simple science, right? Carbon dioxide in the atmosphere helps to warm the planet and keep it warmer than it would otherwise be. Burning fossil fuels like gas, oil, and coal puts more carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. That's not complicated. So the more carbon dioxide we put in the atmosphere, the warmer the planet gets. And in fact, that is exactly what we now see has been happening. So greenhouse effect. Yeah, exactly. So if people continue to refuse to believe it at this point, you've got to believe that there's something else going on. Like they, And what they, do you think
0: not- that is for well, the I, companies? Isn't there a, an economic component to the denial?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I think you don't have to get all conspiratorial on this to no. see that people who whose livelihood depends on continued jobs in the fossil fuel sector, like oil companies and coal companies, are simply refuse to let themselves believe that there's anything wrong with burning more of it. And uh, was it Minken who said that you, know, you can't get a man to believe something if, that his salary depends on, or something like that, you know? <laughs> yeah. um, I love Mencken. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so, and politicians, unfortunately, their salary depends on also believing in this, because, at least in the Republican Party, I think many politicians depend on these donations. And so it becomes a kind of a vicious circle where they're more and more locked into something that's just demonstrably not true.
0: Yeah, I love it when they walked into the Senate with a snowball and said, this proves that you know there is no uh, uh, global warming. I, what do you got to do, walk in with a ball of fire? Right.
1: <laughs> I mean, I,
0: right. It, it, yeah. I, I'm not a scientist either, but am a science nerd from way back. And I don't know, it, it, we used to have, I remember in science class, you'd have a control experiment, right, and and, and then a control right. and then the experiment. And I remember doing one in a terrarium, and it was like, "Here's the terrarium without the, you know, the control without the the stimulus, and here is the experiment." And if the Earth is, if you expand upon that, the Earth being the terrarium, how do you put seven billion people in, a, in the terrarium and not have an effect on, on right. the planet? It it seems so easy to understand.
1: No, exactly. I mean, again, I just don't think that this is something that that is really there's no scientific dispute about this anymore. I mean, of course, there are questions about how rapid it happens and what kinds of policies might be most effective in dealing with it and things like that. But the basic facts of of climate change are no longer in dispute. And I think, honestly, increasingly, they're no longer in dispute among the people who are increasingly seeing those changes. If you talk to somebody in California or you know I'm in North Carolina if you talk to people along the coast of North Carolina (laughs) no it's very nice right now but you know the the or Miami I mean there are increasing number of people who are experiencing the effects of climate change in their own lives and that's just in the United States and of course around the world there are many 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 populations that are much more at risk than even people at high risk in the United States so so again, we're seeing the actual effects already taking place in real time in our own lives.
0: And in some cases faster than we thought is, is the understanding. How do, how do you, as a lawyer, how, do you, how are you dealing with a government that pushes back against basic science?
1: Well there's theres lawyers have two kinds of responses, right One is to litigate. one is to go to court and try and use the law to try and force the change, but the other is to change the law. And unfortunately in this administration, we've seen it roll back virtually every single climate policy that the Obama administration had put into place. Um, and uh, you know I don't want to overstate th- there's a lot at stake in this election. but if the only thing that was at stake in this election is climate, that would still make it the most important election of my lifetime. Yes. And I don't think that is the only thing at stake by any means, but that alone is enormously important because four more years of this, and I, I don't know that we'll be able to recover from it, frankly.
0: What, what do you mean by not be able to recover from it?
1: Well, right now, the. Climate policies that the Trump administration has rolled back are, I think, reversible. That is, we can still turn around our carbon emissions in time together with other countries to avoid the worst consequences of climate change in our lifetime. Four more years of this, I mean, every year we pump into the atmosphere another you know, six gigatons of carbon dioxide, um, it becomes harder and harder to make the changes quickly enough to avoid really catastrophic outcomes.
0: Well, with it and there are some, you know, I look at the wildfires in California. Look at yeah. the number of tropical storms and depressions and hurricanes that we've had this. I mean, we're on Delta now. We, uh, most we've ever right. had We're we're already into the Greek alphabet. And then you can even point to the COVID virus. There are those who are saying that that is also a byproduct of, of uh, global warming or climate change. It, is it, you still think it's not too late that we can make a change for the better or, or, or at least make our, our the, the earth sustainable for human life.
1: I don't think it's ever too late in the sense that it will be too late. Uh, human civilization will end or something like that. I think though, the longer we delay, the greater the costs will be. And the costs will be borne primarily by those who are already most vulnerable, both in our country and elsewhere. So, you know, for example, right now we're at 1 degree Celsius, you know, about 1.8 degrees Fahrenheit over pre-warming temperatures, you know, pre-warming average global temperature. Well, we're running out of time to hold that increase to 1.5 degrees. 1.5 degrees would be Bad, but not unbearable. But if we can't hold it at 1.5 degrees, then we go up to two, or we go up to three, or we go up to four. And as bad as things are now, they're just a small, small taste of what things would be like at three or four degrees. So, What would that be like? Paint that picture for me. Okay, well... Um, much of the southern part of the United States, just to focus on the United States, much of the southern part of the United States would become uninhabitable. It would simply be too hot and humid for people to really be able to work outside. And again, uninhabitable, humans are extremely adaptable. Some people would still live there. But you'd start to see gigantic migrations, millions of people moving to the to places where it's cooler in the summer, where they let their kids go outside, where they don't have to worry about their older members of their family suffering heat stroke and dying. Um, coastal areas would become, again, either uninhabitable or you'd have to spend hundreds of billions of dollars to maintain them. Some places I don't know are savable if we go up to three or four degrees Fahrenheit uh, three or four degrees Celsius. Like Miami, for example, is barely above sea, water, uh, sea level now. And the um, you, you can't really build a seawall around all of southern Florida. You can't build a seawall around the Everglades. So, again, places that we just take for granted is, of course, millions of people live there, would no longer be the kinds of things you could take for granted. Um, And that's apart from really catastrophic, like worst case scenario outcomes. We don't really know enough about ice on Greenland or ice in western Antarctica to be sure at what point glaciers will simply start to calve off of, you know, the land that they're on. And if enough of that flows into the water quickly, then you could have gigantic increases of up to 20 feet, something like that. And then wow. you're talking about, you know, again, cat, cat- we, we right. don't really have words to describe what a gigantic catastrophe that would be for the world.
0: And, and let me tell you what was off putting to me um, being in the white house one day, and I won't mention who it was, but I uh, said that if, <laughs> if all of this melts, who cares? We'll just inhabit Antarctica and, and Greenland. I, I I found that to be not only ignorant and callous but just buffoonerish and and could we get your your take on that
1: well uh, I mean you know where do you start so <laughs> the, <laughs> um, you know moving an entire population from a city is not like Picking up your family and moving to another place, right? We take for granted that there's an enormous amount of infrastructure already in place in the places we move. Build right. what, what, what? What are you even talking about? Building new cities in Greenland? I mean, you know, New York it wasn't built overnight, right? right. It Took hundreds of years. How is that process going to happen? And like, and remember, this would have to be happening in essentially a few years. It's it's ludicrous. Of course, that's not. It would be an enormous, gigantic, you know. Hundreds of millions of people moving at the same time would necessarily result in millions of people dying. Now, I realize this administration doesn't seem that concerned about people dying on its watch, but it, I think the American people- <laughs> No, it's people, encouraging
0: it. <laughs> yeah,
1: you know, there's kind of a death cult vibe sometimes in the in the sometimes White House. Sometimes
0: I walk into that White House and I feel like it's Jim Jones Kool-Aid day. I, I mean, I just can't get yeah. the, how damn callous- and wooden-eared, ignorant, and juvenile they are when it comes to science or, or anything else. But there's, there's yeah. my rant for the day.
1: But- no, I'm, yeah. I mean, this is, obviously, I, I, I'm on Twitter. I follow a lot of climate people on Twitter. And especially in the first part of the COVID crisis, it was like, yeah, this is what we've been telling you for years. And it's not so much that climate caused COVID. It's more just the disregard for science that we've been bemoaning for nice. years. This is, these are the consequences when you don't pay attention to it in the COVID context as well. well.
0: I, I remember uh, a, talking to uh, Dr. Fauci and others. It's not that it's a direct result, but indirectly, as the climate warms, that, um, that things that may or may not have died, viruses, can uh, propagate and, and multiply in that kind of environment, and that increases the likelihood of pandemics. No, that's
1: absolutely true, I and mean, and and it also contributes to the global loss of biodiversity, which is another crisis that we're facing and not paying enough attention to. I mean, as natural yeah. ecosystems break down, we experience the ill effects. I mean, we we it's a huge mistake, although it seems to be something human beings are prone to to think of ourselves as somehow apart from or divorced from the natural ecosystems on which we depend. And so as we break them, we experience the consequences. Some of us more quickly than others, but eventually all of us will experience the consequences.
0: I, I experience the consequence just, you know, when you talk about biodiversity, I, I like the garden, and I've noticed over the years just the loss of honeybees. And, mm, things, yeah. you know, and, and that is, you know, because of pesticides, and, and that contributes to the global climate change. And you go out in my backyard and just getting, you know, the stuff. I, I've seen other species trying to pick up the the, the pace to try and, and fill in where the honeybee was. But that's, it's frightening to me, just the loss of, of
1: the bees. <laughs> no, exactly. We depend on pollination. You know, human beings depend on pollination because nature depends on pollination. The crops we depend on depend on pollination. And so as we, again, knock holes in this, I don't want to say fragile, because ecosystems actually are quite resilient, but we are really, doing our best to knock holes in this quite resilient system that nature bequeathed us. And again, we cannot keep doing that. We are we are approaching the boundaries of our ability to do this and not suffer systemic collapse.
0: Before we go to the break, I want to ask you about your United Nations uh, post uh, that your children couldn't pronounce. <laughs>
1: <Right. laughs> what did you do so, for the UN? <laughs> so the United Nations um, Human Rights Council is the main United Nations human rights body. It's uh, composed of governments, elected by the General Assembly, and it meets several times a year. And it does some good things, but as you would expect, it's limited in how willing the governments are to criticize each other for human rights abuses. Yeah. No surprise there. But one good thing it does is it it, it appoints so-called special rapporteurs or independent experts to study and investigate and report on particular human rights or particular threats to human rights. And I had the honor of being appointed to be the first such independent expert um, on the environment um, in 2012. And so in that position, I essentially tried to clarify how human rights norms, human rights law applies to and is threatened by environmental um, problems. And so I visited lots of different countries and talked to people who are working on these issues and issued a series of reports, um, which I think are fascinating reading, but um, I you know, they are United Nations reports and so not, everyone, not everyone reads them as often as they should.
0: <laughs> I read dissertations, so I'm a nerd. <laughs> okay.
1: Compared to dissertations, they're easy reading, let me tell you.
0: When we come back, we're going to talk a little bit more about uh, human rights and the environment. Stick around. Hi, and we're back. I am Brian Caram, and the show is Just Asked the Question. With us today is John Knox, the former United Nations reparteur, <laughs> not a raconteur, although I guess he could tell us some stuff. <laughs> but oh. I, I, I'm fascinated to talk to you about uh, the function of environment and human rights. How does does uh, uh, environmental abuse or misuse or ignorance contribute to a violation of human rights?
1: So for a long time, I think the two fields developed on pretty separate tracks. And it wasn't yeah, it. Yeah. yeah. So it really wasn't obvious how environmental harm interfered with human rights. But I think starting maybe 20, 25 years ago, increasingly people began to realize that, let's say, your right to life or your right to health or your right to property, all of those human rights can be interfered with, can be abused, can be violated if the environment that you depend on to enjoy those rights is undercut. So if you live, for example, in a in a community next to a smelter, next to some kind of horrible polluting um, source and the government knows I mean, other about,
0: than the White House?
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's some limits to even what what human rights and the environment can do, I guess. But, um, But if you live next to this kind of source and the government knows about it, doesn't tell you how polluting it is, how dangerous it is to you, doesn't do anything to try and stop it, then that's not really that much different from the government not doing anything to stop someone who's trying to kill you, you know, or trying to undermine your human rights in some other way. And so human rights bodies around the world including domestic courts but also international bodies began to issue decisions saying you know to protect these human rights governments have to take steps to protect the environment so that was one of the kind of changes in how people began to think about it
0: well that's fascinating to me because i remember years ago covering a uh, yellow cake plant in southeastern kentucky that poisoned the water people got sick the community yep. the community died went to a you know redress of grievances, went to the state government. In fact, there was a guy who drove to the Capitol in Kentucky and dropped the yellow cake right there on the steps of the Capitol. Good,
1: to yeah. Good for them. Nothing,
0: nothing happened. Uh, yeah. And so, I mean, those abuses happen not only in third world nations, but in the United States as well.
1: No, absolutely. And in fact, in the United States, the environmental racism, environmental justice movement has been, uh, you know drawing attention to these kinds of disparities and discriminatory effects of environmental pollution for a long time really since the late 80s um, and and unfortunately I think there just hasn't been enough response to it the the federal government, Uh, you know, has done some things to try and acknowledge, not in this administration, but in previous administrations, (laughs) has done some things to try and acknowledge the problem of environmental racism. And to be clear about this, it's not just some kind of abstract problem. As you say, what what this means in practice is that if you live in a poor community or a minority community, and especially a minority poor community, you are more likely to be um, subjected to uh sources of pollution they're more likely to be put in your area they're more likely to be um you're more likely to have your children drinking higher levels of lead in the water you're more likely to have your you know blood um uh, the lead in your blood be higher That more likely to be uh, breathing in particulate pollution higher rates of asthma i mean just across the board um those things are different in our country and in many, many other countries. um, They're worse for minority and poorer communities. And that makes a human rights issue.
0: And to take it even a step further, if you look at climate change as a function of the environment, could ignorance of climate change not also be looked at as a violation of your human rights?
1: No, and in fact, many countries, many are seeing courts that are hearing these cases more and more. Um, that is, people are bringing cases to court arguing that their government's failure to take effective steps to deal with climate change violates their human rights. The most successful case was issued less than a year ago in the Netherlands. And again, it was based on a human rights argument. The, the plaintiff said the government of the Netherlands has admitted that this is a problem, and it needs to do X, Y, and Z. It needs to reduce emissions at this certain rate. It's not doing that. That bi- violates our right to life, and the court agreed with them. Um, and uh, there are now any number of cases. I mean, there are at least a dozen cases like that in other countries around the world. One yet, thing lawyers are good in at. In the is, U.S. <laughs> well, in the U.S., it's a it's a tougher road. I will <laughs> I will tell you. I mean. Um, there was a case brought called Juliana, which did have some success. It was brought in Oregon um, several years ago, but it had a hard time making it up through the appellate process. And frankly, if it ever made it to this Supreme court, I think the Supreme court would have shot it down. This is uh, not.
0: I don't even part, think they'd hear it. That I yeah. don't think it would take it hear it. But I, I not, remember yeah. the first year of the Trump administration, one of the first times we were out on uh, in the Rose Garden, and I was sitting out there as Donald Trump announced we were going to withdraw from the Paris Accord. Yeah, And um, as usual, the uh, for those who don't know, the, the Rose Garden is a heat sink. It could be uh, minus 50 degrees and a blizzard outside, and on the Rose Garden, it's going to be sunny and 150 <laughs> degrees, I guarantee it. I <laughs> so, did not know that. Yeah, it's, it is always a heat sink. And so we're sitting out there in the Rose garden and I mean, I'm sweating bullets and he's saying how great the weather's going to get cooler, how great everything is. And we don't need to be part of the Paris Accords because we're doing more than other countries. So we're going to back out. And I thought to myself, a, how long is this going to last before someone sues? And that's why I asked you the previous question and B how dangerous was that move for the United States?
1: Yeah, it's really one of the worst things. I mean, it's hard to rank all the terrible things this administration has done. But pulling <laughs> I, out of Paris, I have
0: them ranked, but I don't have enough paper <laughs> anymore to put them down.
1: <laughs> exactly. But I think pulling out of Paris has got to be somewhere on the list um, once you get past the obvious unconstitutional and racist things, I guess. Right. But pulling out of Paris, I mean, this is the Paris Agreement despite it's, you know, it's not perfect, no international agreement is, but it is the best chance the international community has of actually dealing constructively with, with climate change. And the United States is one of the biggest emitters, the second biggest after China, has to be part of it. And of course, because of the the built-in delay in, in withdrawing from Paris, the, the the withdrawal will not actually be effective until one day after the presidential election this year. So if things go according to the what the polls are now indicating, you would expect that um, Biden would rejoin Paris as quickly as possible.
0: And and to be that's one thing I want to hammer. You're you're an attorney, so I feel comfortable talking to you about this. But these agreements, international agreements are not an end all. They are a first step. And so as any lawyer will tell you or any politician will tell you, it's the art of half a loaf. You get what you can and then you progress from there. And I feel like people mistake that and forget that, you know, this isn't the end-all be-all. This is merely the best we could get at this time.
1: No, absolutely. And that's, you put it very well. I mean, the it's easy to look at an agreement like Paris and say, gosh, this is so weak. It doesn't go nearly far enough, which is true. That's absolutely yes. true. So if you're frustrated with it for those reasons, I'm totally with you. But you're not better off without it. I mean, it's it's a Small step. It's an inadequate step, but it's an important step because it's a step in the right direction, and it gives you a framework for taking further steps. It gives you a framework for further action, but that requires a willingness, a political willingness, on the part of the United States as well as the other major emitting countries, to push for that further action.
0: Right. And but what, what instead what we're saying is, well, didn't do any good anyway, so why do this?
1: No. And we're waiting. I mean, again, I just think it's it's not in good faith. I mean, the people who are who are saying to pull out of Paris don't really want us to take stronger steps without it. They don't want us to take any steps. So it's, you know, that's, what's really going on. I don't, it's, it's not, they're not being really honest about the reasons why they don't like it.
0: No, they don't like it because that it's going to cost them money. Yeah. (laughs) Right. Most of the arguments I see and hear from up top are, are based solely on economic. Uh, you know, and, and it's, it's always the oil and gas and coal companies and returning us to the coal age is not going to be the answer. Although that's what we've heard. Then below yeah. the, the, there are those, you know, the, the normal, you know, average American going about his daily business who do, you know, you don't take the time to become as versed in the issue as you, you actually should be because you you got your life to lead. So of course yeah. you listen to what others say that, purport to be experts and then if it's within your own philosophical cul-de-sac and it fits what you already want to believe you believe it so if they tell you yeah it's a farce we don't need to be in it you go yeah he said it's a farce i don't need to be involved and it's very disingenuous from from up top very naive
1: below i think it's one of the worst things that's happened in in my adult lifetime, the way that we have politicized issues that I think don't yes. and should not be politicized. I mean, you can certainly have a traditional political, legal, uh, political slash legal argument over what to do about climate change. There's plenty of room for Republicans and Democrats to argue about that. But turning it into an argument about whether climate change exists or turning COVID, the COVID crisis, into an argument about whether COVID is dangerous or something to be scared of, I mean, that's really. It makes it impossible to really have a discussion about it because if oh, half yeah. the people you're having a discussion with don't believe it exists, then what are you? What, how can you talk with them?
0: Well, that's, you know, I I have said this on more than one occasion. I honest to God, John, I feel like we're living in the Middle Ages, the dark yeah. ages, and I'm waiting and praying in my lifetime for a renewed age of enlightenment. Right. People <laughs> respect science and math. But yeah. It, doesn't seem to i mean there are people who just won't listen and they call you i mean i, I had someone accost cost me for wearing a mask and they were saying you know you don't care about me you're and i'm going, dude it's why i'm wearing the mask is because yeah. you know it's it's not an expression of no freedom it's like do you walk out in the public not wearing your underwear or your pants i mean it's part of what right. you have to do these days sorry But um, I, I find that particularly with the environment, very annoying that people just simply don't understand the environment.
1: Yeah. And they don't understand how close we are to having solutions for these things and that the solutions would actually make this a more pleasant world to live in. I mean, I think often the debate is, is presented as if, well, we've, you know, in order to deal with climate, it's like taking really painful medicine. You know, everything's going to get worse off. The economy is going to go bad. People are going to lose their jobs. And that's really not true. I mean, we just are shifting. We need to shift from one source of energy to another, or to renewable energy. But we have the technology to do that. Um, and I mean, we can still make money doing. It. We can still make lots of money. People will make lots, tons of money. There's more jobs to be had already. In solar farms, than there are in the coal industry. I mean, we're just, we need to lean into the changes we need to have happen and embrace them politically and then make them as essentially successful as possible. And I do think that one thing Democrats have not always done a good job on, but they're doing a better job on, is explaining how a climate policy that benefits the the most vulnerable, including people who are going to be losing their jobs because they work in coal mines or oil refineries or whatever, how that's got to be part of it, that you have to have your environmental policies and your labor policies and your human rights policies, and they all have to fit together.
0: Well, like, uh, you know, I, I had that discussion with someone once, and I was going, You would prefer to work in a coal mine and get black lung rather than working for a, a solar. <laughs> A yeah company where you exactly the sun and you you don't i i right. you, you'd still make the same amount of money why, why would right. you why would you turn that down but i i confess that that argument fell on deaf ears but <laughs> uh, but i i guess at the end of the day when we look at it i don't know did you ever see the uh, television show I, I guess it was uh, the newsroom with uh jeff daniels oh yeah yeah, yeah of there's, course yeah, yeah there's a great scene where he's interviewing a climate scientist and the guy goes ah hell it's all over with we're done i remember that yeah <laughs> it's it's not quite that dire is it in reality
1: well i mean i you know i uh, look i can certainly understand people especially climate scientists who after 20 or 30 years of this are starting to feel like they just can't take it anymore but i <laughs> I keep coming back to this simple thing. The scientists have really done their job on this. We have the technological solutions we need. The problem is politics. The obstacles to dealing with climate change effectively are political obstacles. That means it's up to us. If we just put politicians in office and then hold them to their promises to do something about climate change, we could live in a really much, much better world than the one that we're otherwise going to face.
0: How would you do that? How would you change that if you could? If you could wave a magic wand or if you could implement a change that would enable us to hold them responsible, what would it be?
1: Well, you know, to come back to what I've spent the last decade or more of my life working on, I do think this is one thing that a human rights perspective really helps on in two main ways. One is framing this in terms of human rights makes clear of it's fun, how fundamentally important it is, that this is fundamentally important to our ability to enjoy lives of dignity and equality and freedom. But also, as I mentioned earlier, a human rights approach opens new avenues. So it becomes more possible to take cases to court, it becomes more possible to make claims based on your rights being abused or neglected. So, while we need better laws in this country, I think we also need to reframe the way we think about these issues from environment as kind of a technical approach that requires better engineering solutions, which is not wrong, but it's inadequate by itself. We need to think of it more as an approach that is necessary in order for us to be able to fulfill our, you know, best Lives we can live as human beings in nature.
0: Uh, can I recommend one? This is just from covering DC for all these many years, but I'd recommend one very practical. Uh, way sure. To hire a lobbyist.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, no doubt. Yes.
0: <laughs> because that's what they listen to. <laughs> <laughs> but if you had a lobbyist, yeah, this is, and there's where the votes are, and here's why you want to do it, you'd get more
1: votes. Well, that's what it comes down to, right? I mean, politicians. Right we expect them to, to lead us in directions. We don't want to go. We're going to be waiting a long time. Right. (laughs) So you have to show them what you want. And I, so as important as it it is for Biden to win, I think it's for climate policy. It's equally important what happens in the Senate and the house, right? Because the the policies that get enacted will be only as strong as the least strong member of the Senate who's willing to vote for them on them. So, um, so that's, you know, I think one thing I and a lot of other climate advocates uh, have been saying for a while is the best thing you can do as a citizen is vote. Yes. Vote for politicians that you... <laughs>
0: Educate yourself. Vote. Yeah. Vote. Vote. There, there are, I've covered precincts where there are 10% of the voting populace only turn out to vote. And that's yeah. great. That's why, uh, honestly, that's why Mitch McConnell keeps getting voted in office because below of voter turnout in Kentucky, people just don't vote um and, and then they gripe about it afterwards and that that one that one always escapes me is you know you gripe about the problems and my first question is do you vote and when they go no it's useless i go well then you're right useless. you're the problem you're the reason right. why you have a problem vote the uh, sobs out but that's that's just yeah
1: weird. no I, mean, I think that's that's got to be that's got to be the uh, <laughs> I mean, that's not the only solution, but it has got to be part of the solution. That we, if you care about these issues, which you should, as you said, right. first educate yourself so that you know you should care about them, then punish politicians who don't deliver on these and reward the ones who do. I mean, that's how our system is set up to work.
0: Yeah, and, and it doesn't work if you don't participate.
1: No, exactly.
0: So we're going to take another small break. When we come back, the last thing I want to talk about is the new Green Deal, And the bugaboo about that, if we can talk about that. Sure. Stick around. We'll be right back. And that work for you, too?
1: Yeah, yeah. That's great.
0: Three, two, one. And we're back with uh, John Knox. And John, I guess we're just going to get to it. I said before the break that we would talk a little bit about the Green Deal. That is that you just say those two words, the Green Deal, and it sparks a great deal of interest and emotion from the right and the left. Tell me what's right and what's wrong, in your opinion, if there is anything wrong with the Green Deal and what it encompasses.
1: Well, the Green New Deal that that AOC and others started pushing in 2018. I think one, the most important thing it does. Well, I'll say two really important things it does. One is it takes climate change seriously. In other words, it takes seriously just how far away we are from policies that we need to have in order to deal with climate change. So it it it's appropriately large scale, because that's what we need to deal with such a large scale problem. And the second thing it does, which again, from my perspective, as a human rights advocate, I particularly like, is that it puts front and center the most vulnerable communities. In other words, it makes clear that part of dealing with climate change is going to be uh, dealing with the effects, not only of climate change, but also the responses to climate change, how those effects are felt by the most vulnerable communities. Now, what's wrong with it? I don't particularly have anything wrong with it. I, I do though want to point out that its I think it's been misunderstood quite a bit. It's not a draft law. It's more like a kind of Concept. statement of purpose, right? It's its a, a, a framework, theme. <laughs> a theme, right? It's like, these are the things we want to go forward with. It's almost like a, a campaign platform. Um, so obviously, when you come to actually writing the laws and the regulations that implement the laws, a lot of issues are going to have to be addressed. But the but the idea that this somehow would already transform the entire country in all kinds of terrible ways, I think it got demonized rather quickly, again, by the same people who don't like any kind of climate policy and wouldn't like anything that AOC put forward so
0: yeah and demonize this I mean it's been called a communist a socialist it's if you do this we're all going to hell in a handbasket the next thing you know we'll be singing kumbaya and you know knitting macrame to you know right you know I I, I, I've never when I've pressed people when I press politicians on what exactly about the Green new deal do you not like by the way I said two words because I, I I in my mind new deal was always one word but that's but it. I guess you could say it's three words. But uh, but when you no, say Green, a- <laughs> when you say Green New Deal to those people who are already predisposed to not liking anything that involves climate change, you might as well be speaking to a wall. They really don't listen, and they have presumptions about what it is, and uh, oftentimes they are not factually
1: accurate. No, that's right, and I think. Again, honestly, these accusations of socialism get made every time I think anyone comes up with anything whatsoever for the federal government to do other than cut taxes. Like Everything else is now called socialism. socialism. It's ridiculous. The Green New Deal does not say the United States government should take over the major industries of the world. That's not at all what it's talking about. Um,
0: But they they say socialism. I'll add one other thing to that. Cut taxes, increase military spending. That's all I want the government, right, federal right. government to do. But right. As far as socialism goes, I mean, how are you going to pay for streets? How are you going to pay for hospitals? How are you going to pay for uh, police departments? How are you going to pay, pay for schools? There's a, an amount of social activity, which would be broadly defined as socialism, where we put our money into a pool and build these things for all of us that, that they seem to you know, forget. So, and by the way, social security. Yeah,
1: exactly. Look, without that, (laughs) providing public goods for people, you know, providing an adequate infrastructure, providing, um, as you say, social security and a social safety net. This is not socialism, right? This is just basic protections that people expect in a society, and the government is the way we provide them to ourselves. Again, no one's talking about the government taking over a big chunk of the economy. It is necessary going forward that we're going to have to make changes in the essentially where we get our energy from in this country. There's just no way to avoid that. We're going to have to change that. But part of what we should be doing, for example, is cutting the gigantic subsidies we currently give to the fossil fuel companies. If people were really concerned about socialism, that's something to train their targets on. We provide something like 20 billion dollars a year in direct subsidies to fossil fuel companies. Why are we doing this? Why on Earth are we doing this? It makes no sense. Um, so when people complain that we're oversubsidizing renewable energy, you know, compare it to what we're giving to the fossil fuel companies, and it's, it's not even a, a small fraction of how much it is to that. And again, one of them is killing people. The fossil fuel you know, industry is actually killing people today. Um, and the other is the way it's we've the got to go in the future. has been for the last hundred years. But- exactly. I mean, you know, one thing that gets overlooked quite a bit, although you just mentioned it, is the fact that by cleaning up, by reducing our carbon emissions, zeroing them out, which is what we need to do, we would be saving all the lives of people, not from climate change, although that, of course, would be part of it, but not just from that, but from particulate pollution and sulfur dioxide pollution and these, you know, the ways that we already pollute people just from burning coal, for example.
0: One of the last things I guess I'll ask you while we got you God, I could do this all day long. It's fascinating conversation. And thanks for joining us. No, it's my pleasure. uh, Yeah. And for those who don't know, look up John Knox. Great. Uh, I I really have enjoyed it, but (laughs) I want to talk a little bit, and maybe you can tell me as a lawyer and, and someone who's concerned about human rights and the environment, how do you fall out on, On healthcare, because here we we look at uh, the healthcare in this country, it would seem to me that that would be a fundamental human civil right. You know, we hold these truths to be self evident that all men are created equal, they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. Among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Without healthcare, how do you have life for the pursuit of happiness?
1: Now, I could not agree more strongly, Brian, and in most of uh, the world, one of the fundamental human rights that people recognize is the right to health, the right to the highest attainable standard of of health. Now, that doesn't mean obviously no one ever gets sick or that the government's somehow responsible if you do, but it does mean that the government has an obligation to provide health insurance or some kind of standard medical care, You know that you don't have to worry that if you get sick and you don't have enough money, you're gonna die or suffer some kind of debilitating illness. The idea in the United States that that's somehow not a human right, I think is really pernicious because it, it makes it sound like people are at fault for things that are really outside their own control, you have no ability. Most people have no ability in the United States to control, you know, their their the major drivers of their health. They don't have ability to control their genetic inheritance. They don't have ability to control the environmental factors around them. Certainly, children never do. Why on earth are we somehow yeah. treating it? Is their responsibility to um, provide for their own health care if they can't do so? I mean, it just seems fundamentally immoral to me
0: and you talk about it being pernicious, but I, 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 think it's, it's even more so when you take a look at um, you can't determine your, your genetic ability to, but the, the poor, the people who have, a, uh, who have no money. Right. I think Andrew Yang said, you can't afford a bed today. So you got to, you, now you're going to have to have back surgery and pay more tomorrow. I mean, your health and your diet uh, contribute as much to your health as you know the diet that you have, and if you're poor, you have a poorer diet. So you Absolutely. can't afford decent food. So now you, you're going to have to have health care, which you also can't afford. I, I find that right. fascinatingly stupid and and economically yeah. unviable.
1: Right, and as Elizabeth Warren discovered in her research as a law professor before she got into politics, most of us are not that far away from that. In other words, even much of the middle class in this country is only one severe illness away from bankruptcy. Um, And again, this is ludicrous. This makes no sense either from a moral perspective or just from, uh, if you're only concerned about the economy, what sense does it make to have this kind of system? in which people are at such they're constantly having to think about what job to take or not to take or to try and get a job just for the health coverage as opposed to what makes most sense for them you know what they're best at what they would be able to contribute most to the society by doing it's it's a terrible system
0: so yeah it is now i i don't let anybody out of this podcast without asking one frivolous question so okay shoot oh. <laughs> beetles or stones
1: oh it's got to be beetles that all the way yeah, yeah. And yeah. Are you a Stones? How are you coming on this, Brian?
0: Oh, me? Oh, I'm a Beatle fan. Right,
1: yeah, no. Yeah, right. It's got to be Beatles. Yeah. First yeah.
0: album I ever bought was uh, the first two albums I ever bought were Magical Mystery Tour and the White Album. So,
1: oh yeah. Yeah, that's so. that's a good start. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So now, it's, your favorite Beatles?
1: My favorite Beatles. I mean, I think that's kind of a tough one. Um, yeah. My, you know. I think growing up, I always had an affinity for John because we had the same name and, and, and whatnot. But I, you know, over time, I think I've gotten fonder of George. George just seemed like such a good guy. Um, I don't know. How about you? What's your...
0: Well, I started out uh, as, as a kid, uh, as a Paul fan. Uh, yeah. And then um, when I got to be a teen, I, I, when I really began questioning, you know, authority... And I'll confess, it was a book called Ball Four by Jim Bountain. Oh yeah,
1: yeah, I remember you know, that book. Yeah.
0: I, I remember reading that book. Going, wow, you could you can question authority. Right. <laughs> so then I became right. more of a, a John fan. And I've always had, and if you like George, that recent uh, documentary, two part documentary on George was pretty good. I mean, he almost yeah. died uh, when someone broke into his house, and then that exacerbated his cancer, and then he ended up dying. But uh, i always thought that uh the whole was greater than the sum of the parts
1: absolutely and yeah and so
0: i like them all together uh better than any of them separately i just like john lennon's sense of humor i always thought that he was a bit cheeky and uh, uh, they were great
1: yeah. and that and that's one thing i think he really contributed paul could be a little bit serious i think yeah. or you know whatever but but they were a great combination yeah. obviously I mean, I mean the two of them together were
0: yeah and then all of them, I mean, you know, like you, you, I watched some of their press conferences and how do you find America? Well, we went to Greenland and we took a left. You know, uh, <laughs> what do you call that haircut, right. Arthur? <laughs> no, <laughs> like we're, just where you could tell they were just in it for the fun. And, and, yeah. uh, I, I love, and, and I'll tell you something as a musician that I, uh, that I always like about the Beatles. Anyone, I've found that anyone can play a stone song and if you don't get it quite right for the audience, they'll accept it. Oh, you're doing the Stones. You're just you're. It's rock and roll. You're having good fun. But if you endeavor to do a Beatles song on stage, you better do it right, because right. people are going right. to get pissed if you don't.
1: Right. <laughs> don't don't besmirch the memory yeah. of the.
0: Yeah. So if you're a, a big
1: <laughs> of the Beatles, if now you not... a George
0: yeah. fan. Uh, what's your fa- do? You have a favorite George song? That he wrote
1: for you. I don't know I mean um, my, my favorite songs honestly by the Beatles are probably by uh, by Paul and John I mean a day in the life I think is a great great song um, and one of the things I always loved about the Beatles is that they they evolved so much over time and I think George did have a big part of that I mean with the whole Indian influence right. and, and and becoming such a great songwriter himself but um, but yeah like you said they're 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 greater the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. Um, yeah. And it's really, no, in my in my lifetime, I'll, there's I'll, still... I'll
0: toss three at you from George there. I really love. Okay, all right, um, From Abbey Road, I think there's two contributions, Something is probably one of the greatest
1: yeah.
0: ballads ever written. I think Superior to Yesterday or anything that Paul or John wrote as far as a love song, yeah. Something is great. Um, Here Comes the Sun, I really love. And then yeah. if you go back to the Yellow Submarine uh, album, there's a song called "It's All Too Much." Yeah, which is a, a really great, <clears throat> seldom heard rocker that starts off with great uh, feedback. And I always thought that that was those are my three right. favorite George songs from the Beatles.
1: Those are great. I would add "While My Guitar Gently Oh leaks, yeah, well, um, yeah. <laughs> have you? You've probably seen the, you know, when they put him into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and Prince and. That was um, unbelievable. that's yeah. one of the most um, amazing things I've ever seen.
0: Prince went, and um, I read a, a interview with someone who had talked to him, and, and they had rehearsed it that day, and uh, George's son Donnie was there for it, and uh, Prince had never really paid much attention to the song, but had come up with the you know the the signature beat. Right. So at the end, he said, "I I got something a little extra," and so at the end, when they recorded it off the charts great if you haven't heard it man it's one of the best versions you know it was uh he he didn't do the original lead and of course none of the beatles did you know who did the original lead for that was
1: no yeah was it clapton
0: yeah eric clapton is was it really i did not know
1: that that's cool
0: yeah he did the original lead in the song um but what prince did with it on stage with tom petty was just unbelievable and there's a point where you see george's son looking at prince and he's just like wow he's blowing
1: he's doing right no it's really what if you haven't seen that video listeners you should go do yourself a favor and go see it at the very end prince just throws his guitar straight up and you don't see it land and i don't know on youtube some comment or somebody said i think george caught it like there's no
0: Uh, it was it was fantastic
1: it's yeah. incredible prince was i mean that guy was an yeah. unbelievable musician but guitar
0: uh, player One. oh my
1: god yeah and, yeah and people and, forget that about him right because he could do so much else but no it was un- yeah.
0: <laughs> uh, unbelievable i i loved uh, i he was an i saw him i think it was in 78 or and i think he opened for like the almond brothers <laughs>
1: wow that, that's that's <laughs> quite a concert. Yeah,
0: that's, that's <laughs> just not I, I can't remember who it was. It was but it was something like that. It was like, you know, his music was one way and then the main headliner was something else. And you liked them both, but you're like, wow, he's playing with who?
1: <laughs> uh, since you asked about the Stones, in eighty I went to see the Stones in the Astrodome. I grew up in Texas. Um, in- where where in Z- Texas? Um, I grew up in North Texas, outside of Fort Worth. Um, where? In Arlington. Oh, right yeah. in the middle of the Metroplex, yeah. um, and uh, but I went to school at, at I went to Rice in Houston, and yeah. I, anyway, so the Rolling it. Stones were great, and ZZ Top opened for them. Um, <laughs> that was quite a. That was in nineteen eighty. That was pretty much as rocking as you got those two bands. So I saw cool.
0: ZZ Top at a bar <laughs> in Green. Did you Dragons, really in gr- the in Green, Texas in nineteen eighty five? They showed up one night and just started playing in, in the bar and we'd gone floating as you know that's a great area in texas to go oh, to. yeah we had gone floating we show up at the bar that night and there's zz top in a corner playing
1: that's amazing <laughs> yeah. wow that's yeah. incredible yeah so are you from texas as well is that where you
0: I, ha- I have a, a official visitor status. Two of my sons were uh, born there. You know, as they say, you oh, know, okay. to be, yeah. an American you have to be born a Texan. <laughs> <laughs> right.
1: I, right. I,
0: I lived in uh, the Houston area and in San Antonio and in uh, Laredo. Oh, cool. So, yeah. So
1: long, oh, long association
0: with Texas, and I still love the cajitas. You can't get them yeah. like that anywhere else.
1: No, no, you really can't. And. Tex-Mex is Tex-Mex is the best, and um,
0: Bill Miller's yeah. Bill Miller's barbecue too.
1: <laughs> oh yeah, barbecue in Texas. North <laughs> Carolina really loves its barbecue, but it's 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 just not, not Texas. It's not Texas. No, it's it's not, not the it's same. same. It's not no a, offense, to North Carolinians, but it's not it's not the same.
0: It's, it's not. But so, were you a Dallas Cowboy fan?
1: Oh my God, yeah, yeah. yeah
0: my, my dad's was a huge. Dallas Cowboy fan. And one of the biggest thrills I got uh, was going with him to see Dallas play before they moved to the new stadium. And then after they moved Um, and and he loved it.
1: Yeah. And I was a family. I mean, you could not be a Cowboys fan growing up then, especially, but also, I mean, growing up in Arlington, you know, the Rangers moved there when I was like nine. And so that pretty much locked me into being a Rangers fan for the rest of my life, which has been a tough.
0: Yeah. That's, that's worse than being a Cowboy fan these days it's a tough one if you're going to be a rangers fan but it's tough yeah.
1: fate i don't wish <laughs> As i've been saying for the last 50 years now <laughs>
0: <laughs> well listen john i appreciate you being on the program uh oh, thank I'd you brian come back uh the name of the show is just ask the question i am your host brian karam thanks once again for joining us we'll catch you next time